Hey, it's Katie. And Alana. And we're back for another episode of Black and Yellow. Content warning, we will be talking about the new Disney movie Cruella today. So if you have not seen the movie but plan to see it and want to avoid any spoilers, push pause on this episode, go check it out, and then check back in with us because we will definitely be dropping spoilers like Disney dropped Cruella's smoking habit. And now, on with the show. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> What's good, Black and Yellow Nation? Happy Pride Month. It's great to be back in your ears once again. How are you doing, Alana? Ooh, Katie, sometimes, girl, I can't believe I'm grown <laughs> up. <laughs> Specifically when I'm doing really grown-up things, like planning a wedding, which has oh, yes, to happen. I can't, like, for, for any listeners who are new to the show, I got engaged uh, on New Year's Eve 2020, and because the pandemic made everything a hot mess, I am Oof. just beginning to plan my wedding in Vegas, um, and I think I've fallen into a bit of a wedding planning from my couch uniform, mm. which consists of vintage Levi cutoff shorts and this really comfortable sweater that proudly proclaims that I can't believe I'm a grown-up either from a line called grown-up gear have you oh, heard this line I have not tell me oh it's it's pretty amazing first things first in terms of the the sweatshirt I have taken yeah. many a cat nap and a disco nap in it between like <laughs> researching for the show, prepping podcast episodes and wedding planning because it's that comfortable and mm. it makes me smile like while doing something super adult like wedding planning. And I kind of feel like wearing it, it's like some sort of confirmation that like I got this whole adult wedding thing, wedding planning thing on lock, like in yeah. clothing form. But uh, Grown Up Gear, I think you would really dig this designer and her mission. Uh, do you know the podcast Money Tips for Financial Grownups? Briefly, yes. Okay. Okay. It's a, a finance podcast that drops really dope finance knowledge that's easy to follow and easy to understand it's hosted by a woman named bobby rebel who is a certified financial planner and she's awesome she hosts the show and she also uh is the owner of grown-up gear it's her line and it's meant to celebrate okay. adulting yes we need that right like i'm just glad <laughs> that the celebration of adulting is super comfortable because i'm low-key obsessed with this hoodie and high-key and wearing it like in the dead of los angeles summer just because it's that comfortable in a really like chilly air-conditioned house uh, but I'll drop yeah. a link to the website in the show notes for anyone who wants to check up grown up gear. It makes really rad gifts for loved ones who can't believe they're grown ups either. And in general, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm very much stuck on that mode a lot of the time. So check out grown up gear. And I know that you liked wedding planning. Is that true? I did. Yeah. My, I think you about it. My my husband and I were known as the very chill leading up to their wedding day bride and groom oh that's yeah. what i want to be uh, i don't think i had any bridezilla moments i was pretty chill up through like we were even running late on our wedding day and i was still pretty relaxed about the whole experience and okay yeah i don't know if it's the personality because uh, we're kind of the go with the flow or if it was the the planning process for us because mm. uh for context we booked a venue that was all-inclusive so it included a caterer included a decorator included a wedding planner all for one price got it and we got a discount and was that visiting. really helpful like for you overall in terms of like your your 
just not having to make a ton of decisions because it feels like a lot was already made for you. Yeah, we would just check in with them once a month. And it was Ooh. really like, hey, we're just checking in about these are the things that we offer for this. And this is the theme. And this is X, Y, and Z. They even had a bridal shop. You could buy your wedding dress from them. Uh, oh, they, they were super full service. They were super full service. They had like three meats, three starches, vegan, gluten-free, like all of the options. Uh, because the owner of the venue was also the chef. Got so it. everything was all about the food. Ah, and okay. they Yeah. Okay. And uh, they are bankrupt now, so you can't go there oh, no. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we just got a bit later. Question. Yeah, so sorry, um, I'm getting your hopes up, but you can't go there. Uh, they ran out of business like a year after we had our wedding. Oh, Okay. Yeah, because uh, everybody was like, hey, remember when you had your wedding here? Well, they're bankrupt now. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least it was easy for you while it lasted. Yeah, we got very, we were very lucky. Uh, that's sure. For sure. It yeah. sounds like it. And I hail to you in terms of being a chill bride. Like, <laughs> I haven't made too many decisions yet, but we did find our wedding planner. And so. That's a solid first step. That's a sex girl. <laughs> my <laughs> Yes, you are right. And, I mean, I have to say. The topic that we're talking about today, if Cruella DeVille was a Ooh. real person, mm -hmm. I feel like she would not approve of us, of you being married and of me getting married. Is oh, that no. Right? I feel like that's true. <laughs> she would be like, no, no babies, no boys, exactly. no partners. Exactly. Well, let's get into today's episode because yes. I know this is you all day. This is me all the time, all my life. Um <laughs> I am super excited for this episode. We are finally talking about Disney. Woo, woo, woo. It's been a long time coming. Um, mm -hmm. A few months. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> Counting down. <laughs> Counting down. And uh, it's going to be a great summer. So for those of you who don't know, Disney villains are one of my all-time favorite topics to talk about. I love talking about Disney villains. I love talking about the oppressions and the barriers they face in this Disney royalty utopia, which is literally just like dripping with privilege. And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you feel, Lana. And maybe this would be a great way to start the conversation. But I think Disney villains are more interesting and come with so many thoughts, so many identities, and they have agency and take action to get what they want. And so I'm kind of curious, what are your thoughts uh, about Disney villains, Lana? So first things first, Katie, I hear that word on the street is that they call you at Diz Villain Scholar um, That's across right. the social medias. I'm just saying. So we're in good hands today. But I would 100% agree with you. I have always found Disney princesses to be um, sort of flat and lacking mm -hmm. in the character development sphere. And I generally find that the journeys that the princesses go on or princes go on are a lot less interesting than the journeys that Disney allows their villains to go on. Yes. It, it feels like early Disney lore, like the Disney that you and I grew up with that era. It feels like whoever was writing stories was paying extra close attention to the villains in terms of really making them three-dimensional with some really great backstory. Yeah. As opposed to the princesses, they, their backstories always felt kind of spotty. Um, I have to say, my favorite Disney villain has always been Ursula. Mm. Oh, and mm -hmm. it kills my feminist heart to say, because I don't know, I'm not one for violence with uh, women on women violence. We'll mm -hmm. get to that. Mm-hmm. 
but I've always loved, maybe it's the music that accompanied oh, yes. Ursula. Like she has poor unfortunate souls, not an anthem. Not the an- Cruella has right. her own anthem. Right. But I I admire any ambitious woman who is doing it for herself and mm-hmm. getting it. I wasn't say getting it on her own. Ursula stole <laughs> hers. But but making their own way. I love that. So I totally agree with you on your stance on Disney villains, one hundred percent. Ursula's also a career woman. She's a businesswoman. She's a yeah. lawyer. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. I mean, I Maleficent was also a really interesting villain. I don't yeah. think she had quite as much um, self-sufficientness behind yeah. the scenes. Does that make sense? Yeah. They didn't really show much about her that you could get yeah. anything from. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, like, Scar was pretty non-interesting. He was just jealous of his brother. Jafar was kind of an interesting villain. But I hear you. All all around, mm-hmm. Disney villains definitely stoke my interest way more than princesses. Yes. Especially as an adult, I feel like we identify more with them than a princess. Yeah. Well, they feel like more complex, real people. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. For sure. That's what I preach. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so as an audience viewer, you may be asking, why are we talking about Disney villains? Both of us watched the new Cruella movie. So we thought, yeah. let's do an entire episode talking about the infamous character, Cruella DeVille. And before we get started, I do, well, we also, we both want to emphasize that this episode will mainly be talking about Cruella DeVille's character and representation throughout Disney, not just in the Cruella movie. Um, so that being said, what are your initial thoughts about Cruella DeVille, the character, before mm. watching Cruella the movie? Ooh, okay. So I told you this. We talked a little bit via text before this, but I realized pretty much 20 or 30 minutes into the Emma Stone Cruella that mm-hmm. I actually had never seen 101 Dalmatians. What? Yeah, no. I I was not familiar with the that story. And I think just watching Cruella, I think I was, it became very clear to me that I was aware of her as a cultural icon and as a fashion icon. Interesting. But I didn't know her backstory. Like, I didn't know that Cruella was not this, not Emma Stone Cruella, um, Glenn Close Cruella and the animated Cruellas. Yeah. I didn't realize that she was big on animal cruelty and wanted to steal some puppies (gasps) to make a coat. I didn't understand that. Why are people ignoring that, telling you these things? Why are we glamorizing animal cruelty in those films? I'm still confused by this. (laughs) So so I actually watched Cruella and then watched all of the other 101 Dalmatians, the live action, the animateds, because I feel like I had to really catch up to properly Mm. do this episode. Yeah. So Cruella as a character is complicated and definitely an anti-hero to me. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like, She's complicated and cruel. She's she's ambitious. She's got a business sensibility about her, and she'll stop at nothing to succeed. She was she's cool with animal cruelty. She's stylish. She's competent. She's self assured and really cocky. Like she felt again, as we were just talking about, like a very fully formed character. Like she feels yeah. very realistic because she's both relatable and repulsive on so many levels. Oh yeah. Um, And then in terms of specifically the Emma Stone Cruella, it really, I mean, obviously it felt like, you know, a commentary on the pitfalls of social media and, Mm. you know, uh, an examination of 
how women used to relate to each other in life in the workplace versus now like you know getting all of those things oh my gosh yeah yeah and all of it wrapped up in these wonderful fashion moments which I loved so I totally advocate for going to see this movie I do not advocate for woman-on-woman violence I do have to say that how do yeah. you feel about it, though? You're yeah. the expert here. I'm curious <laughs> to know your thoughts. So when I watched it the first time, I was really just watching it to enjoy it or to force myself to enjoy it because oh, it's a oh. Disney villain film. And that's my life. So <laughs> for context, Dis- uh, Cruella DeVille in particular is one of my guilty pleasure Disney villains to like. Because she's so dramatic about everything and she has such, um, I guess, like divaliciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people call her a diva villain. And yes. I love watching that. I don't think I could interact with someone like that on a Fair. daily, but mm-hmm. I don't mind watching it. And I can watch that all day, all the time. The reason she's a guilty pleasure is because of the animal cruelty part, yeah. because I just can't get behind it. There's yep. no way to redeem that. It's just, yeah. Um, so she's a guilty pleasure villain because I, I like to hate her. But um, Sure. Totally. Yeah. I, initially, I I liked the movie. I liked the fashion. I'm not a fashion person, but I did really like the fashion. I like the soundtrack. All of the super popular hits that you hear in all the movies. Yes. I was like, I know all of these words, even though I'm not a huge music person, but I know all of these words because we grew up listening to these songs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I liked the Jasper Horace story arc. I like that mm-hmm. they were in it more because I didn't really feel like they had personality before. So I felt like you got a little bit, got but it. at the same time, the trio dynamic, I felt kind of overshadowed everything else and it was kind of it was well because it's like oh we have the baroness and we have corella we have two strong female lead characters and everyone else is essentially male this is true this is true okay i I hear you i hear you yes yes So it's like it's supposed to be a feminist movie but also there's only technically like two female characters one gets killed off one is kind of a side character who doesn't really do anything or talk she's also like one of the only characters of color and so it's kind of like what's going on there (laughs) so there's all these things i mean i do think it was powerful to see to have to have two men working under cruella i do oh for sure to have that gender dynamic definitely uh um front and center oh for sure something i loved about that dynamic yeah yeah and i uh i definitely liked that and then the second time watching it was when all the problems came <laughs> for Uh-oh. me. So me I, I wrote a blog post about it, but essentially there's a lot of, um, like, I don't know what other word to use, but there's a lot of emotional warnings that should have been put at the beginning mm. for family dynamic adoption related storytelling. Mm. So I have friends in the adoptee community who are adopted who said that this movie was emotionally upsetting for them, Um, which is not something that has been talked about. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, which is something that also I feel like a lot of people don't notice. And maybe it's something that seems very, like, minor or very small, but for others, it's it's a huge, impactful thing, um, especially, I would say, for people in the adoption community, whether they are adopted or they're thinking about adopting or they have adopted. And 
it is something that we see a lot in film. Um, they use it as a ploy to kind of spice up the narrative or spice up the story to kind of get you to be on your toes and be like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Um, but it is um, emotionally troubling and problematic for a huge portion of, of the world. Yeah. Um, and so that was really hard to, to have that conversation with those people in my community and um, I guess trying to find ways where we can advocate and speak out about it, which is why we're here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think, spoiler alert, um, in Cruella, the Emma Stone version, uh, Cruella is an adoptee. Her uh, guardian, shall we say, is mm. killed by her birth mother. And we learn throughout the film who her birth mother is. And we learn uh, who killed her guardian. And it is woman-on-woman violence. But it also, it felt very unnecessary. Oh, for sure. of giving Cruella a, a tragic backstory. And I get that Disney is, is, is big on a tragic backstory. But I agree with you. I don't know why that had to be the route to give her a backstory. Why did we have to, why did her birth mother have to give her away? And then subsequently her guardian was killed. It didn't feel necessary, especially at the top of a movie that was so captivating and so interesting. Yeah. Without that. Yeah. I mean, even just watching, um, I, I refer to adoptive parents and guardians as the parent unless the adoptee says otherwise but I I look at it in like the guardian or or the parent as being killed like that in and of itself is a tragic story arc that would have been enough Mm -hmm. not that it should have been because we need more Disney moms in Disney but um (laughs) we'll take what we can get um more female characters please I am a Disney mom and uh there's only I when I was pregnant I only saw one pregnant lady and I was like, where are all the pregnant lady in these Disney movies? <laughs> where am I in this? Nowhere. That is a conversation. That's an episode right there. <laughs> That's great. Sorry, I cut you off. No, no, no. Never so, thought about that. Go watch Emperor's New Groove. The only pregnant lady you'll see who is huh. pregnant the entire movie and not just to give birth. All right. That's strange. Yeah, because Rapunzel's mom is pregnant, but only at the beginning. So, got it yeah and then uh, she gives birth to rapunzel and yeah you know the, the it's definitely it. an investigation why is disney um not for showing pregnancy on film well, it's worth, worth a little google search maybe an episode yeah i hear you yeah so um some facts that i wanted to say before we get, we get started we went on a tangent but uh <laughs> according to the american film institute corella deville is one of the greatest villains of the past century she came in at 39 out of 50 of the 100 greatest heroes and villains list and was one of three animated characters on the entire list so uh, to give some reference, she was one spot before Freddy Krueger mm. and about five spots before the Joker from Batman. Uh, I don't know what the credentials were for this, and I was trying to like gauge what that might be. But I saw mm. Corella DeVille's name um, after Darth Vader, the man who killed Bambi's mom, Snow oh. White's evil stepmother, the shark from Jaws, and the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz. Uh, huh. So if that gives anyone any context or theory on how they decided Corel DeVille is number 39 of 50. Got it. Thank you. And you're welcome. <laughs> so, 
I don't know how that came to be, but that is what it is. Um, and I didn't know this, actually, as a Disney villain scholar. I didn't know this, but Cruella DeVille is also a primary member of the Disney villain franchise. I didn't know there was a franchise, but I guess there is. And the subgroup franchise, Disney's Divas of Darkness, also shortened to Disney Divas, DDD, or Disney's Bad Girls. I like Disney's baddies. Like, like where's mm. that hip iteration? Nowhere, apparently. But that is interesting. I mean, it, she. I mean, she is. I guess if if Disney villains uh, were a musical songbook, they would be. She is definitely one of uh, one of the classics and the great American songbook that would be the Disney villains for sure. For sure. So with that, we are going to talk more about Cruella. But first, shall we put our money where our mouth is, Katie? Let's do it. I'll go first. Hey, if you are new to the show, this is our small business segment. We encourage you to diversify your dollars. So each, uh, both of us, Katie and I, choose one business to spotlight, one black owned and one Asian owned business to spotlight to encourage you to shop black and Asian and protest with your dollars. It's important. Katie, what you got? Super important. Um, so I have this mom pa shop called My Little Cube, uh, spelled L-I-L, little, in Puyallup, Washington, by the Washington State Fairgrounds. And shout out, Washington State Fairgrounds is top 10 fairgrounds in the U.S. Hey. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Don't ask me why I recently discovered that, too. But I yes. Shout yep. <laughs> out to your home state. Yeah. So... I drive by this place every day and everyone I know only ever raves about this place. And I wasn't able to find an Instagram handle, but they do have a Facebook page if you want to check them out. Um, And I I call them the jewel and the metaphorical cave of wonders since we're going Disney today. And um, you can stop by the fair. You can then, you know, drive over to my little cube, a little hole in the wall and get some ramen and dumplings. Be delicious. You know that that place is good because there's very little digital footprint. And I am always convinced if a restaurant, an eatery, a business has very little digital traction, it's either one of two reasons. They're delicious or great or amazing and will blow your mind Mm -hmm. or are super shady. Either way, (laughs) I say go. Just try them out. It's delicious. And I mean, it's literally right in the middle of the town of Puyallup so I don't think it can be that shady because it's in the smack in the middle of town that's definitely an LA girl saying like it's either really good or really shady no definitely I I bet it's like bomb and yeah go go because I can't there you go and with that I'm going to highlight mine which is called brownie points for you on Mm. the socials they are at brownie points for you they are an la based shout out to my hometown queer black owned company that produces (gasps) limited run products that focus on aesthetics and equal rights yes owned and operated by multidisciplinary artist and writer rennie perkins her designs harken back to the groovy 70s so she has an are you afraid of diversity shirt that literally made my nickelodeon heart scream uh because it's in the same font as are you afraid of the dark but she also sells posters and pins and decals for your car window and candles and jewelry and and, oh and so many ands it's definitely worth a check out brownie purchase with pride go check them out we will drop links 
or I should say links and a Facebook page to yeah. both of these businesses in show notes. I'll also include an address as well. So if you are in the area, you can swing by and get your ramen fix. And, and send me that, pictures. <laughs> and let Katie know that you've been there. Katie wants to know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and with that, let's talk about the history of Miss Cruella DeVille, shall we? Yes. So Cruella DeVille first appeared as a book character in the 1956 children's novel 101 Dalmatians by Dottie Smith, followed by a sequel, The Starlight Barking, in 1967. I did not know that part. This original children's novel showed a huge, like so much darker and yeah. more demonized version of Cruella than all future adaptations of the character. And, you know, maybe it's just because it's Disney. Well, I mean, we'll never really know because it was so long ago, but. Well, as per my research, yeah, 101 Dalmatians is an Anglican story. Oh, is it? A pagan story. Yeah. So that might have something to do with it. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Weird, weird tidbit that I like picked up and was like, that's interesting. Noted. Moving on. Yeah, it was just like, um, what was it? She's always cold. She has to like stoke the fire all the time with right. all these giant fur coats. And exactly. there's rumors that she is related to the devil and to a serial killer and mm-hmm. um, that she she killed like 40 kittens and right. all these all these things. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a children's novel. Like, yep. what is going on? Is that right? <laughs> uh, and the character Corella DeVille at least in the research, seemed to be heavily inspired by actress Tallulah Bankhead Mm -hmm. uh, across all platforms, both the book and the animated movie. So in numerous sources, the author, uh, the animator Mark Davis, who designed Cruella DeVille, also designed Maleficent, and Betty Lou Gerson, the voice actor who played Cruella DeVille in the animated movie, all mentioned Tallulah Bankhead as a partial inspiration to not only create and design, but also act as the character Cruella DeVille. Uh, in 1961, the book was adapted into the movie that we know, which is the Disney animated 101 Dalmatians movie. Um, and as just mentioned, Betty Lou Gerson was the original voice of Cruella DeVille and the first person to play Cruella DeVille. Uh, and fun fact that I found about Betty Lou Gerson is that she was also the narrator in Disney's animated Cinderella from 1950. Wow, which, which really got me because I was like, "What a, what, what a drastic oh. shift from Disney princess story narrator turned Cruella Deville." I was like, "Disney was holding her back." Well, but I also think that that was a sign of how the studios worked at the time. Oh, for sure, yeah. Where you signed on for a Disney contract or project, like you signed on, and the studio owned you. And so I, I think they had to either reuse you or you didn't work. So I think that's definitely a sign of an older time for sure. Oh, yeah. She wasn't even in the credits for Cinderella. Ooh. They didn't even credit her as a narrator. That's a bad look. It is a bad thing. And I was like, she said quite a few lines. Right. I thought. Right. right. <laughs> Uh, and then Independent said that Disney also brought in Mary Wicks to do the physical acting for animators to draw to. Wow. So they said about Wicks, uh, quote, Wicks towered over her peers at a gangly five feet, ten inches. Wow. Wicks captured Corella's flamboyant physicality on film, the swirl of the coat, the throwback head, the wild gesturing with an improbably long cigarette holder, giving the animator a human frame of reference, end quote. So technically... Mary Wicks was the first person to do the live action physical role play of Corella. Just nobody saw it but the animators. 
So we now know. We now out. know. Um, Cruella, and another fun fact, I found all these fun facts about Cruella DeVille. So another fun fact was uh, Cruella DeVille was supposed to be the villain of the Rescuers movie that Disney did What's years that? later. It's um, t- about two mice who are like detectives and they go on this adventure to because they receive a bottle saying help from an orphan girl. And the orphan girl is being essentially adopted by this character named Medusa, who looks and acts a lot like Cruella DeVille, except instead of trying to skin animals, she wants to get this really rare diamond and uses Penny, the child, to get it. So Mm -hmm. child endangerment, like literally about to die multiple scenes in the movie. And so the two mice are like there to help Penny escape and find a family. Ah, yeah. So it's supposed to be Cruella Deville, uh, but then they scratched it. Yeah, and it's okay. Uh, <laughs> a lot of child endangerment in that movie. I w- <laughs> rewatched it recently, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is a children's movie. What is going on?" She's just you hanging. How many times you've said that about Disney movies? Uh, all the time. Times. All the many, time. Many times. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then years later, 1996, Disney decided to make the live action 101 Dalmatians with Glenn Close as Cruella Deville. Uh, and uh, as I'm sure a lot of us may know in this adaptation, Cruella DeVille was the fashion CEO. And that's, I think, that's when people started to view her as a feminist icon and a fashion icon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then additional mentions, I, I, some of these I didn't even know about. But these are additional places that you can find Cruella DeVille uh, oh. if you wanted to watch. So there's 102 Dalmatians, which is the sequel to Glenn Close's 101 Dalmatians. There's a 101 Dalmatians, the series. TV animated series. There's 101 Dalmatians 2, Patches London Adventure, which is the sequel to the original animated movie. Uh, the TV show House of Mouse has multiple episodes with Cruella's, as well as literally every Disney character. Mm-hmm. TV show Once Upon a Time Season 4 has Cruella DeVille. Uh, the Disney Channel movie series Descendants, mm-hmm. uh, Cruella DeVille is a mom in that one. Oh. And then, yeah, a mom. And then um, the actor who played her son actually passed away a year or two ago so oh yes all right yes. i remember hearing yes. about the passed away yeah yeah and then um there's a 101 dimensions musical can we just talk for a moment about the fact that glenn close's adaptation of cruella deville she was campier than the cartoon character and i think I, I, I had a hard time getting past her. <laughs> and I think because it was 1996 and I feel like 101 Dalmatians was one of the first stabs at live action. Maybe not the very first, but definitely. It seemed one, like it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the first where they were still trying to figure out like, okay, this is a cartoon that we're bringing to life. How big should the performances be? And so they just went huge. Yeah. <laughs> super over the top and flamboyant which i understand corella deville is it just i gotta tell you that live action one was kind of hard to watch it was just so over the top and just so much it was like a well when would you see that film. yeah like when would you see that in real life you would be right. like wow what a bitch like right exactly it was there were parts that i think that were hard to watch because of that because i was like okay she can be over the top and flamboyant but can we like ground her because she's on like a small screen and not on a, a stage projecting she's screaming to the everything yes everything was yeah. huge so that yeah the live action was definitely not my favorite iteration but um 
necessary to watch for it's definitely entertaining to watch definitely oh 100 percent. i wanted each and every one of those animals that was featured in the movie especially that big shaggy dog that leads them out of the house like yes so let's talk about cruella and career oh yeah this most recent adaptation the glenn close iteration even within the book, I believe, like the earlier books, she was always a career woman. You could say that she broke through the glass ceiling in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and 2021. Like, she's, oh, yeah. She just keeps going up. She just, she's like fine wine. She just gets better with age. I think it's also worth noting that she is the only Disney villain with her own anthem. So the song Cruella DeVille, mm-hmm. I'm sure we all know it, Cruella DeVille, yeah. Cruella DeVille, um, which I love that she has her own anthem, but I have to be honest, I don't know how it pushed the story forward. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's it's purely there for panache and style, which is very, which is very Cruella, if you think about it. I think it was meant to gear you up for when she burst through the door. I think so too. I and I guess I liken it to other songs that Disney villains sing. Like I'm thinking of Poor Unfortunate Souls, Be Prepared, where like we are hearing the the villain's plan in that song. Whereas yeah, it moves the story. Is, yeah, like this is yeah. very much her like hype woman music, which I'm not mad at. Like you could have a hype song but I, it just, it definitely stuck out to me as not pushing any narratives forward. But that's oh, okay. for sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. According to The Independent, in 2002, Cruella was the only female to make it on the Forbes fictional 15 rich list with an estimated fortune of $875 million. Girl, Woo! can I get $20? Come on. Like, I love that she's like super successful and rich. Mm-hmm. Super rich rich get it girl get it and so in 101 dalmatians the novel cruella was married but kept her maiden name and made her husband take her maiden name because she was the last family member alive with her name i think it bears just saying that that didn't happen in the 60s right that was nearly unheard of and i love that sense of agency and ownership over her maiden name because frankly after i got engaged after i literally said after my fiance said will you marry me and i said yes the immediate next thing i said to him was but i'm not changing my name like i'm not changing my last name i am super proud of it and i'm super proud of what it means and like how far my family has come that i just couldn't bear to give it up at this time. So I felt mm. a, an interesting kinship to Cruella in that way. Yeah. For sure. And so according to the Times about Glenn Close's Cruella, quote, in the canon of Disney villains, Close's Cruella stuck out to some fans as somewhat of a feminist icon with her successful career and decision to not have a children, to not have children or a husband, end quote. And that does feel really radical. Even for 1996, even for yeah. that case that Disney made, because Disney is all about the happy nuclear family, if a oh, nuclear yeah. happy family can exist. Yeah, for sure. And so it was surprising to see not only this woman who's a career woman making it on her own and doing it for herself, but also in the film, 
in the in Glenn Close's film, I should uh, be specific. She does take an interesting kinship to oh god, the mousy blonde whose puppies she ends up stealing. Anita. She, Anita. She does take an interesting interest in her talent and what her possible career trajectory could be. Oh, I love that. Which I thought was really refreshing and very mm-hmm. different from uh emma stone's cruella and the baroness played by emma mm-hmm. thompson who we will get to yeah and so in the opening scene of emma stone's cruella we learn that cruella's real name is estella cruella is actually a nickname that her mom uses when she was acting rebellious and Estella rebels a lot. She <laughs> fights bullies. She does not listen to her teachers. She does not pay attention to the dress code. I'm a Catholic schoolgirl, so I definitely feel her on that. And all her life, Estella is told Cruella is the villain. However, Estella doesn't see Cruella as the villain. She sees Cruella as the hero. Yeah. And make no mistake about it, Cruella was always a woman who took responsibility for her own life. And almost served as her own moral code for better or worse. The success that she created for herself, the trouble that she got into, the attention that she commands, the family that she has carved out for herself, that's all uh, based on the work of her own design and her living her own unapologetic life and making choices that might not be for everyone, but they fulfill her. And that is something that we hear a lot of in the Emma Stone version is uh, Estella essentially saying that she's not for everyone and that's okay. But the people that she is for are the people that matter to her as well. And so, and that's the way that life should be, right? Like we should be surrounding ourselves with people who make us the best versions of ourselves. We should be surrounding ourselves with punch up friends as i say or punch up people that inspire greatness out of us instead of mediocrity celebrate us yeah for sure and ultimately the emma stone version of cruella it it feels like it explores the power of ambition and how if you harness ambition you can use it to advance yourself into wherever you want to go in life as long as you're not afraid to hold yourself back and i Mm. think it's a great reminder that we women people men mm-hmm. the the, the, uh, the entire we uh we're allowed to go after what we want fearlessly as long as we're prepared to get a little scrappy get a little gritty get a little messy uh get ourselves into some uncomfortable conversations in the name of going where we want to go because it's okay to dream big and follow those dreams yes Woo! inspirational I know, right? But then, <laughs> but then we get to Cruella and Baroness von Hellman, aka the Baroness. Which, mm. correct me if I'm wrong, their relationship is a very large plot point and plot driver. Oh, for sure. Yeah, uh, and it changes. The dynamic changes throughout. Sure, because Cruella, Emma Stone's Cruella, is in essence an origin story. Mm-hmm. It's a, an origin story of a, a gritty, rebellious fashion designer who wants to challenge the establishment. And you were very familiar with the lore of Cruella before, uh, much before I was. Mm-hmm. So please correct me if I'm wrong. But Cruella was not a sympathetic character prior to this film. No, because she was a puppy killer. Right, exactly. And and so it's, 
you have to think like how do you make a non-sympathetic character sympathetic Mm -hmm. and the answer is you pit her against an absolute monster and that monster is Baroness von Hellman played Mm -hmm. by Emma Thompson and I love how uh, this article on Mashable defines and describes the Baroness they say this Quote, the Baroness is cunning and ruthless. She has a complete and utter disregard for anyone who isn't her, stealing people's ideas and testing everyone around her terribly. When presented with a taser, she zaps a maid and proclaims, Oh my God, yeah. She can do it all day. Also, and this is a big one, she's a murderer. Unknown amounts of times over, she is a murderer. To say she's a horrible person would be an absolute understatement. (laughs) Yeah, she even was like, she was even like, which person did I kill? You have to be more specific. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I got to tell you, like, the the woman-on-woman violence was really tough for me to take in this Mm. film because I feel like it was totally unnecessary for driving the story forward. You could have still had a really great story without the woman-on-woman violence. So this is really where I think Disney might have fumbled a little bit. Yeah, because it kind of shows that we have to fight for the same yeah. place. Yeah, yeah, and I, I and I don't think we're there anymore. I think that that was a relic of the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it is worth mentioning another spoiler. So Cruella says that she's not for everyone, but one person who she is absolutely for is the Baroness. The Baroness loves Cruella and loves the the fashion that she brings she loves Mm -hmm. her style and the baroness is a woman that cruella has always looked up to and so once spoiler alert once estella (laughs) slash cruella starts working for her she realizes that things are not all rosy and wonderful Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think that's pretty real i think sometimes working for your icon or your idol Never meet your idol. Yeah, like it's not always what it's cracked up to be. And so the big reveal of the movie is that the Baroness turns out to be Cruella's birth mother. And so the Baroness, who is a fashion designer played by Emma Thompson, is sipping champagne with her new employee and a would-be designer named Estella, played by Emma Stone, and lecturing her on what it takes to succeed in business. And I think that this really clearly lays out um, the Baroness's outlook on success by any mm. means necessary. She says, quote, you can't care about anyone else. Everyone else is an obstacle. You care what an obstacle wants or feels, you're dead. If I cared about anything or anyone, I might have died like so many brilliant women with a drawer full of unseen genius and a heart full of sad bitterness. You have the talent for your own label. Whether you have the killer instinct is the big question, end quote. And I think that the relationship between Cruella and the Baroness is really important because I think that it shows a stark difference in how women used to relate in business uh, in, in years past and what it's like now. Yeah. The Baroness is mm-hmm. all about stomping on the competition. There's only room for one, and it's me. You can't have multiple women at the top. If someone is showing me up or stepping in my light, you have to annihilate them. And Cruella slash Acela doesn't believe in that. Mm-hmm. We lift as we climb. We empower women. We certainly don't murder them. Right. They're a problem for us. And I think that... 
that's a really important lesson as someone who uh, came up in a time of, uh, you know, all women are competition. There's only room for one, you know, make sure that there's a spot for you at the table. Don't bring anyone else along. And I think that that kind of thinking really holds us back as women. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we have to do that anymore. I don't think we have to operate out of scarcity mindset anymore. And I think that Cruella really uh, reminded us of that. For sure. Yeah. And I guess the resources would also be another thing. That's true, too. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, yeah, Um. Okay. So now I'm going to move into adoption. So we kind of talked about this earlier, but uh, the adoption trope specifically applies to the new Cruella movie, not so much the uh, other Cruella adaptations. So as an adoptee, I feel like it's really important to talk about this since, like we mentioned earlier, we haven't really seen anyone else do it. Um, specifically in regards to this movie, um, because as I said, I did, this movie just kind of struck something and maybe it's because it's a Disney villain movie, uh, versus a Disney hero movie. I'm not, you know, too sure of, of the exact thing, but it did strike quite a big chord in the adoptee community. Um, so I do, I do want to talk about it. And so to give some history and context with film representation, most adoption narratives show adoptees as either the hero or someone who overcomes a great evil or a great system or a great something and it's their fate or destiny and they're helping their community. And so if you think of Superman, Harry Potter, Jon Snow, Hercules, Michael Orr, Luke and Leah, Skywalker, Annie from the musical, Pinocchio, Tarzan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or adoptees are seen as the complete opposite, where they're a villain or a troublemaker who defies authority and the societal norms, maybe seeking power because of their lack of agency and or having some kind of challenge with mental health and wellness or processing emotional trauma and lacking the support services and resources to navigate their experience and past trauma. So thinking of Loki, Jessica Jones, Scarlet Witch. Uh, I think Scarlet, which is adopted by the Avengers, so that's why I included her in that. Ah, Magneto, okay. uh, X-Men, Credence Barebone, if we're looking at the Fantastic Beast series uh, from Harry Potter, and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all these different tropes, and really I kind of mentioned this too because Loki just came out, the TV show, yep. and in the first episode there's a huge scene with him finding out about what happens to his adoptive mother, and, and that's a whole thing as well. So... Um, some people may also view these tropes as uh, those who were able to accept their adoption and be an understanding of the reasons why they were separated from their birth parent versus those who were not accepting of their adoption and felt abandoned or unwanted by their birth parent because of the separation from them. So that's another way that some people also look at it. And for Estella slash Corella, I, I personally think that she switches between the two binaries throughout the movie. So at first I feel like she was guilty about her mother's death, so she was striving to be a better person, so she can move, so she can move forward, be successful for her mom. Like literally, one of the main driving points of the story, yeah. motivation to be the best, pursue fashion, and not challenge authority or the rules, not be a troublemaker like we saw her to be. The problem with this representation of Estella Corella as an adoptee is three things: the language used, the parent-child dynamics and relationships. And the very, very brief mention of adoption that totally disregards adoption the rest of the entire movie. And so uh, in particular, I wanted to touch on on two examples. So with language, because I feel like a lot of people don't know about this, uh, and this is actually something that adoptees do too. So it's not like there's anyone who 
uh, we can't we can't say doesn't do it or we can't uh, blame that does it. But when Corilla finds out she's adopted, she says, my real mother and other mother, which is super problematic language. If we and this is something that adoptees do, too. They say the same thing. And if we look at the context of the time period, it, some people will overlook it because adoption stories and language were not really known, not common but still happening. Um, but it still emotionally impacts people who witness it, even if it is on the screen. And I would say my mom, who is an adoptive mother, but I call her mom because she raised me, would find that super gut-wrenching. Like, I as an adoptive that. parent, being told that you are not their parent and you raised them, like that, n- no. And yeah. so that is a super problematic yeah there should be some kind of warning at the beginning because and and people don't realize that and it it is literally breaking your feelings (laughs) into shattering into a million pieces yeah it makes total Uh, sense yeah and the the other part is the oh you're secretly adopted and your mother didn't give birth to you uh plot twist that we talked about yeah yeah so the total disregard for the huge news drop for the whole entire rest of the movie is telling me, and I don't know about how others feel about this, but it's telling me that Disney threw in this idea to spice up the script, to change things up. And it didn't need to be there, as we talked about earlier. And I get some adoptees don't identify as being adopted. And maybe Corella is one because she found out as an adult. And that, I mean, that happens. People people think that. And they're like, I don't really feel adopted. I don't really feel different. I you know, feel like I belong in my family dynamic. I feel like everything's great. That's sure. that's great, and we we totally feel happy that you feel that way. Uh, but adoption is much more than a way to create a plot twist, and maybe it's because it's a Disney movie. Maybe it's because of the way they tried to um, express it or other. But yeah, it just seems like it was only there to be in the film to change up the script, and that's not okay. Uh, yeah, I think in general, everything in Disney movies kind of comes too easy. Oh, for and sure. That, and that was definitely one of those turns that came way too easy. Like, we don't, like, her, you could have just killed the woman who was raising her, her rightful mother, and mm-hmm. it still would have been super painful. We don't need the, this dramatic sort of return of the Jedi-esque twist. Right, right. You know? Yeah, the Jon Snow, you secretly were meant for greatness and we had to hide you trope. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, not cool. And I mean, so we can all say, we all have different interpretations. We can all say, you know, maybe, you know, discovering that she was adopted, that her birth mother killed her um, her mother, that her birth mother tried to kill her uh, is a huge driving force in the story moving forward, in the behavior that Estella and Corella express. Uh, and, and I'm sure we can all agree, right, on, on those things. So whether or not it was because of an adoption-related narrative, whether it was a revenge or vengeance story, whether it was wanting to make her mom proud or other, we won't really know because it is a movie. And I totally understand that. And But art, you know, plays a part in real life as well. It moves into real life. And a lot of the new information did present itself in a short time like we talked about. So I understand that it's a lot to process. And to be honest, as an adoptee, that is something that you process for your entire life. It's not going to be a quick turnaround of I accept this or I don't accept it Mm -hmm. or I'm going to find closure. It'll be with you your entire life and you'll have different feelings and opinions about it. Mm -hmm. And that's just 
the way life is and that's okay. Um, and if you, in particular, if you want to learn more about this topic, I am planning to release an entire episode dedicated to Disney adoption narratives on my podcast, The Wonderful World of Disney Villains this upcoming summer. We can also drop it here because I think that all I think that what you just said is really powerful. And I was actually surprised by how few people were talking about the adoption narrative in this film. Because oh, yeah. It, it, it is the thing that that packs the drama, sadly. Like, it's the mm-hmm. thing that makes you go, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. But yet there's very little conversation about it and... I, th- I thank you so much for not only uh, informing me, because I, I read your blog post to prep for this, but anyone else who maybe didn't know about how this movie was problematic for the adoption community. Mm. Let's talk about something else. I think that we yes. have, we cannot talk about Cruella without talking about fashion. Yes. Because really, what is Cruella without her clothes? Well, naked. What's anyone without their clothes? <laughs> That's what I was thinking, too. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, clothing and Cruella is like peanut butter and jelly. And her de facto image of Cruella, if you close your eyes and you think about it, the the image that is burned into so many youngins' brains is that of her wearing a form-fitting V-neck slip dress that hits just above the ankle with this massive white fur coat with a blood-red lining keeping her warm, complete with red pumps and red long gloves. She also loves her cigarettes. And she loves to smoke them out of an over-the-top cigarette holder. And so I would I assume that the gloves are to keep the smell, like a very fashionable way of keeping the cigarette smell off your hands. Oh, I didn't think about that. Well, that was the that was the only thing I could think of. I mean, yes, she's cold, but also I like to find functionality in what people would all would otherwise sort of uh, consider to be frivolous fashion. Mm. And like a massive fur coat will keep you super warm. The only other thing that will keep Cruella Deville warm are just the hellfire and damnation that she feels, at least in the Glenn Close uh, episode, when she doesn't get the puppies to make the coat sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. And then all of it's like topped off with this skunk colored hair. I mean, Cruella from day one was all about flamboyant style and unapologetic confidence. And that's precisely what made her so, A, easy to love and hate. Right. (laughs) Aspirational, even though you don't really want to admit that she's sort of aspirational because she is, you know, uh, uh, cruel to animals. She's an animal abuser. That's why she's a guilty pleasure. Totally. And see, she's way more interesting than other Disney villains by leaps and bounds. She's also modern. Yeah. She definitely feels like the most realistic woman. A realistic mm-hmm. human being in all of the Disney villain lore. Like, yeah. I don't want to hang out with Cruella, but I believe that that she exists. And I think there's a little bit of Cruella in all of us. Minus the animal cruelty. Right, And the chain course. smoking. Yes. Or, or maybe you do chain smoke. And if you if you do, smoke them if you got them. Um, but we can't talk about style. We, we can't not talk about style because style is super important. Because style is the way that we communicate who we are to the world without even saying a word. It's the yeah. armor that we walk through our days with. And it's the way that we communicate how we want the world to treat us. I think of someone like Mark Zuckerberg. He revolutionized what it meant to wear a zip-up hoodie because before him, zip-up hoodies were worn by, you know, uh, was just casual wear worn to either go to the gym 
worn by slackers or teenagers and all of a sudden here comes mark zuckerberg millionaire facebook and he's doing it in a a zip-up hoodie and so that sort of shocks the world and that style definitely captivated people in the same way that cruella style definitely captivates uh our audience and i should say style it's worth noting what it actually is and how it functions i think sometimes talking about clothes can feel um like frivolous, but I love psychology today's uh, little explanation of how style works and why it's so important. And I think it definitely applies to Cruella. So psychology today says, quote, style is a little excursion into self-expression through clothes. It is self-knowledge and self-confidence expressed through what you choose to wear, a life-affirming expression of your character and spirit, end quote. And Cruella's look straight away is what makes her an icon because she's so striking and so unmistakable. And this excerpt from Smith's book that you were talking about earlier describes Cruella's wonderful appearance. So this excerpt goes like this, quote, she was wearing a tight fitting emerald satin dress, several robes or several ropes of rubies and an absolutely simple white mink coat, which reached to the high heels of her ruby red shoes her hair was parted severely down the middle and one half of it was black and the other was white rather unusual end quote it's also worth mentioning that her physical makeup her physical stature is very Mm -hmm. sharp and pointy yes her nose her cheekbones her chin her eyebrows which it all adds to the panache basically Mm. her 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 physical stature is screaming to the world i'm sharp so watch out. Yeah. And we couldn't talk about Cruella without talking about fur. Because in the Emma Stone version of Cruella, there is noticeably less fur than in previous animated movies, or the live action, or the books. And when I say noticeably less fur, I mean no fur. Which is significant because of the way that fur seems to be a part of her backstory. Mm-hmm. In the Dottie Smith book that you mentioned earlier, Cruella is married, but Mr. DeVille is pretty inactive. So gets virtually no story time, aside from the fact that we learn that he was a seller of fine furs. Mm-hmm. And Cruella married him, uh, not taking his last name, to essentially have access to his furs or at least that's very Literally. strongly implied in the yeah. book. so the marriage was not for love it was for fur and as you said fur keeps her warm because in every iteration of 101 dalmatians or cruella she's always in a cold place yeah and that's true yeah and it's always being sort of swallowed by this fur coat which uh, is a metaphor that's not lost on me because it's like fashion is swallowing her mm. it's this literal and figurative swallowing of fashion that is essentially what gets her thrown in the clink in previous uh, iterations of cruella yeah but in this most iterate in this most recent iteration of cruella the fur is gone and the animal cruelty is gone as well it kind of makes you wonder were we rooting for animal cruelty in the 90s and in the oh. 80s because watching it as a 2021 sjw i was like deeply shaken and had a really hard time getting beyond the idea that dr house stole a litter of puppies <laughs> that would be made into a coat just saying like it dr ha- dr house and mr weasley <laughs> yes oh my god yes <laughs> 
I didn't even realize that until you said it, but you're absolutely right. So Time Magazine uh, gave a statement about why Disney dropped um, the fur. No statement about why they dropped the smoking. I think that's kind of implied. But in terms of- Oh, I have that answer. Oh, okay. Hold on one second. Let me me get to this. Then I want to know why they dropped the smoking other than it's bad for you. Quote, while fashion remains one of DeVille's central interests across adaptions, her obsession with fur appears to have dropped off in the 2021 film. Of Stone's more than 40 costumes in Cruella, none involve fur. Quote, while Dalmatians and other dogs are present in the film, Cruella doesn't share the same motivations as her animated counterpart. Disney wrote in production notes, in this film, the character Cruella does not in any way harm animals. Mm. It's an interesting choice to strip a villain of her very signature characteristics, Mm -hmm. one which perhaps the studio found too risky given the fervor of animal rights groups. Many viewers surely would have struggled to find empathy for a dog killer. Literally. I couldn't agree more, but onto the cigarettes. Why did they get rid of her as a smoker? Which also added to her evil, um, evil, dangerous allure. Yeah, the green smoke is a is a thing across all Disney villains. Yes, it (laughs) Uh, is. So I found out that Disney banned all smoking in Mm. all future films starting in twenty or no two thousand seven. Got it. So since 2007, anything that Disney makes will not include smoking anywhere ever. Understood. I mean, it does make you... (laughs) I definitely was watching the live action going, we are glamorizing animal cruelty and chain smoking. So it is no uh, surprise to me that my generation is one of the last smoking generations. Like, I remember a Mm. time where people were, were holding cigarettes but not cell phones in their hands. Yeah. I blame Cruella DeVille. Yeah. Once upon a time, also tried to redeem her with the dog killing thing. It didn't work out well, so I, mean, I get it's it. It's kind of hard to come back from dog killing. That's a hard thing to to sort of walk back in general. Oh yeah, you can't. Yeah, no way. So with all this fashion talk, I I think I have to just say this. It feels like the most recent iteration of Cruella seems to be demonizing the fashion industry. Oh, did yeah. you get that feeling? Kind of. I don't feel like I fully understand the fashion industry to make a clear (laughs) opinion about it. And just, okay, because my idea of fashion is skinny jeans and a graphic t shirt that has some kind of funny or Disney related quote. Yeah. So I was like, all this fashion is a little too too intense for me but it Got looks it. great <laughs> i see i see i see exactly what you're saying i mean i definitely was like wow for a movie that is basically all about the fashion it's really ripping on the industry as a whole and mm. uh, over at new- the new york times vanessa friedman who wrote an article called cruella fashion is toxic Oh. has this to say quote for as long as there have been film sets set in the fashion industry That world has been portrayed as a gilded cesspool of caricatures, cattiness, and occasionally criminality, with a twisted value system far removed from the cornfield heart of everyday life. No matter whether the film is, no matter what the film is in question, whether if it's a comedy, a drama, a satire, or a musical. And thus, Mm. does the demonization of fashion play on? Its role as shorthand for 
its role as shorthand for all that is morally corrupt and venial in the world continues. It's one of Hollywood's most beloved, if increasingly inane, cliches. End quote. Ooh, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah, I mean, think think about the people who exist in the Baroness's um, uh, entourage. Exactly. But also who was working for Cruella as well. Like, we didn't necessarily see any of those fashion people as three-dimensional likable people but really more plays on what we assume fashion tropes and people in the fashion world to be are that's true yeah yeah and i i I also feel like this was sort of surprising because if we if we stack the cruella film so Mm -hmm. cruella emma stone this is her origin story right right so assuming that from there we would go into the live action glenn close from Mm -hmm. 1996 Well, it's weird that in this iteration, the most recent iteration of Cruella, we're taking on the fashion industry because Cruella is basically portrayed as someone who's like a scrappy upstart who Mm -hmm. wants to challenge the establishment, who then goes on to the Glenn Close film where she basically is the establishment. Yeah, that's true. So that was a strange choice for me uh, that Disney made. But entertaining nonetheless. So I have to ask you, Katie. Yes, you're the scholar. I'm a civilian. <laughs> Do you think Cruella is a feminist icon or anti-hero? <sighs> I <laughs> mean, like James Lipton. Yeah, I love me a good anti-hero. But whenever I talk about Cruella to people who are not as familiar with Disney movies, I always say as the initial statement that she's a feminist icon. Mm-hmm. Because I think she is. And I think totally. that's what people remember her by, even though, yeah, because like you were saying, you had no idea about the animal cruelty because society didn't decide to keep that fact about her, like the most yeah. important fact about her. Uh, they decided that her personality, the way she talks and her fashion mm-hmm. statement and like her mansions and all these other things, her female empowerment and all that is as a feminist icon is way more important, which I mean, it is important, but also she's a villain. (laughs) So yeah, Yeah, for sure. It's sort of hard to root for her at points. Yeah. I mean, I would say I definitely originally think of her as a anti-hero, but I think I usually talk about her as a feminist icon. Yeah. I think I'm right there with you. I I would definitely say she is an anti-hero, but if someone's throwing shade, I would actually talk up her good points and yeah. <laughs> animal cruelty and whatnot. Um, you know, it, it, just leave it out. Conveniently leave it out as it feels like Disney did with all of the other 101 Dalmatians. Like they were like, mm-hmm. she's an animal killer, but let's not really focus on the fact that she's an animal killer. Cause I guess it's not her. She's making other people do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the intention is still there. Right. Right. Of course. Well, that is our episode. What do you guys think? Do you think Cruella DeVille is a fash- is a feminist icon, a fashion icon, both, or a feminist and fashion anti-hero? Mm. We want to hear your thoughts. We also want to yeah. hear your thoughts on this episode. Did you like it? We want to know your deepest, most personal feelings about this. Reach out to us on social at Black and Yellow Podcast, or you can reach out to us individually. My name is Alana Webster. However, at the on the gram, they call me at Renegade of Fun. And my name is Katie Ohashi. You can find me on Instagram at Diz Villain Scholar. 
Check out her blog and her podcast if you want more Disney content. She's coming in hot and it is good, y'all. What you get on <laughs> what you get on Mike is double what you get on her podcast. Go check her out. And please subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're subscribing, please feel free to rate and review. It really helps to push this little show of ours along, get into some more ears. And we will be back next week to talk about brunch. Yeah. That's all we got to say for now. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Bye.